Let's open today with a, a, another word of prayer. Father, speak to us. We just sang of your ancient words that are ever true. And now as we open your words, as we speak of those who've opened your words before us and what they've found, God, I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, and that we would be transformed. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. So yes, are, you, are you guys excited? I mean, you guys are probably preparing for the big holiday, you know? And if you haven't, there's still time, because we all know what October 31st is, right? October 31st is, right, Reformation Day. Reformation Day is the day that we get out our Martin Luther costumes, and we go and we nail theses on people's doors. I'll be selling these after the service. This year is the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st of 1517, it's the date that says when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, Castle Church in Germany. And he unintentionally started a movement that changed the world. What was this movement? What, what was he trying to do? And what did it accomplish? To begin, I'd like to write, watch a, a brief video that talks about who Martin Luther was and his ongoing significance. So if you could make sure the sound is on, Dwight. Here we go. Martin Luther, considered by many to be the father of the Protestant Reformation, also changed the way the world read the Bible. Legend has it that Luther nailed a document containing 95 theses, a list of questions and propositions for debate, to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31, 1517. Luther's 95 Theses were not a sweeping criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, but a direct response to the sale of indulgences. People bought indulgences as substitutions for acts of penitence when they sinned. Luther was concerned that indulgences and the way they were sold could mislead people. He explained his disagreement with this practice based on his beliefs about church tradition and interpretation of the Bible. The 95 Theses were originally written in Latin, but they were soon translated into German, copied and printed, and spread across the Holy Roman Empire. Luther wrote sermons and pamphlets, becoming increasingly critical of church practices and teachings. He eventually was excommunicated in 1520 after he refused to recant his beliefs in writing. Luther and his followers were also declared political outlaws by the Holy Roman Emperor. Luther hid at Wartburg Castle for a year to avoid arrest and grew a beard to disguise himself as a knight. While at the castle, Luther translated the New Testament into German in about 10 weeks. Previous German translations were based on the Latin Vulgate, but Luther used Greek sources in his work. Luther's German translation of the New Testament signaled a monumental shift in Christianity. Since the late 2nd century, the Bible had been read and taught in Latin across Western Europe. The clergy were not all well trained in Latin, and most people could not read it. With Luther's German translation, the Bible was in the hands of ordinary people in everyday speech. The Roman Catholic Church asserted that the Latin Vulgate was the authentic and authoritative Bible. Church officials were very concerned that untrained and unlearned lay people were interpreting the Bible for themselves. They believed individual interpretation could undermine church authority and potentially allow heresy and false teaching to lead people astray. 
Some of their fears were realized when Luther's movement caused a separation in the church. The Protestant movement grew out of this split in the church. Disagreements over biblical interpretation and other issues later caused divisions within the Protestant movement as well. Because of Luther's translation, the Bible was now read by a wider range of people, including German lay people. In 1534, Luther, with assistance from others, completed the translation of the Old Testament into German. When Luther died 12 years later, it is estimated that over half a million copies of the complete Luther Bible were in circulation. The translation of the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the everyday speech of the common person became a hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. The Bible was soon translated into Spanish, French, English, and other languages. Luther left a complicated and controversial legacy, but he is one of the most significant figures in Western Christianity. From Wittenberg monk to Wartburg translator, Luther changed how the world read the Bible. Luther read the scriptures. He read the scriptures for himself. And then he encouraged other people to do the same. And when he read the scriptures for himself, he came to see that the teaching and practice of the church of the day was not in line with the scriptures. And his conclusion led him, as it talked about, to say the church needs to be reformed. And so Luther's actions of protest were never meant to split the church and start a protestant movement. He wanted to reform the church according to the scriptures. And friends, what was needed in the church in that generation is the same thing that's needed in the church in this generation, is the same thing that's needed in the church of every generation. We need to be constantly reformed according to the truth of the Scripture. As Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, Reformation doesn't mean you scrap the role of the Bible and put up your own ideas and theories. It means the exact opposite. It means returning to the Bible. And every Reformation, including the Protestant Reformation, has been a return to the New Testament. Luther's reading of the Scriptures, his translation of the Scriptures into the common person's tongue, started a revolution. It started a return to the Scriptures, and it resulted, he wanted a reformation of the church, and it did reform, but it also split, as we saw. And friends, such a reformation of God's people, according to God's word, it needs to be ongoing. It needs to be always happening. His word must always be reforming us. And is it? Recently, President of Southern Seminary Albert Moeller said, We now find ourselves on the underside of a moral revolution unprecedented in human history. And as long as there are departures from biblical truth, we need to continue to reassert the call to faithfulness that was famously proclaimed 500 years ago. Until Jesus comes again, the Reformation is never over. The church must be, and it must always be, reformed according to the Word of God. Friends, what we learn from the Protestant Reformation is that we need to be consistently, constantly, always reforming always reformed according to the Word of God. And as we come to the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, there is no greater reminder than that we, the church, need to be transformed. We need to be reformed. We need to be molded, and we need to be shaped by the very words 
of God. And when Luther and his reformers returned to Scripture, what they uncovered, it spread like wildfire across Europe. It changed the very course of history because what they uncovered as they went back to the Scriptures was the Gospel. Friends, what the Protestant Reformation uncovered was the Gospel, a return to the authority of Scripture alone, and in it they found the Gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Now you rightfully might ask, well, how could the church lose the gospel? What Wasn't it always in there? The truth is it was never completely lost. When you listen to the teachings leading up to Luther and even, even of Luther's day, there were still those that were proclaiming the gospel. However, the majority, to the majority, the gospel had been lost because it was obscured. Is obscured by layers of church tradition. It was distorted by the scholastic theology of the day. It was twisted by human corruption. So what Luther and the reformers uncovered and untwisted was the gospel. So that it again could be clearly heard. It again could be joyfully embraced. It again could be widely celebrated. And friends, it was. And it transformed the world. And it can still transform the world today. The truths of the gospel as articulated by the reformers were eventually summarized in what are known as the five solas of the Reformation. Now, sola is a Latin word meaning alone. And these slogans summarized doctrines, not doctrines that were imposed upon the Bible, but as they went back to the Bible, these are what they found within the pages of Scripture. These solas are a central summary a summary of the doctrine of salvation, a summary of the gospel, a summary of the very heart of Christianity, these five solas. We have sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And solideo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And this being 500 years since the Reformation to celebrate, I believe that they're actually introducing a new Solo next year. It's Solo, a Star Wars movie. And I believe that that represents the doctrine of Star Wars alone. But in all seriousness, church, we need to reject the doctrine of Solo, Star Wars, because we all know that by the gospel, even Star Trek fans might live long and prosper. Come on, I've been waiting all week to do that. Okay, let's just stick with the original five solas. We're going to briefly examine each one together. We're going to look at the biblical basis. We're going to talk a little bit about how Luther and the Reformers arrived at the truth. And we're going to talk about the ongoing importance of these five solas for the Church of Jesus Christ today. And the first one, as we said, is sola scriptura, Scripture alone. You see, it's the question of, friends, who determines what is true? It was the question of who determines what is truth. And in the Roman Catholic Church, it held three equal authorities. Wow, I guess my joke broke the internet. There you go. So can you click click on it there, Sam? Okay, I should be able to do it now. Roman Catholic Church holds there are three equal authorities. There are the Scripture, the written Word of God, and equally authoritative, the Church Traditions. The Catechism of the Catholic Church reads, both scripture and tradition 
must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And finally, a third equal authority is the magisterium, which was the teaching office of the Pope, together with his bishops in unity with him. And their determinations and interpretations were considered equally authoritative. All three of these things, scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, were considered equally authoritative. So what is truth? How do we determine truth? A three-legged stool. All three legs of equal importance. Because of this, unfortunately, though, the gospel was hard to find. Why had the gospel been lost in Luther's day? Because it had been obscured by layers of authoritative church tradition. It had been distorted by popular culture and by the thought leaders of the day, by the scholastic theology that was being practiced. And the gospel had been twisted by corrupt teachers for their own personal gain. So Luther and the Reformers, they came forth declaring, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is the ultimate and the final authority. It's as we sang in the Reformation hymn this morning, we will trust in God's word alone his perf- where his perfect will is known. Because our traditions, they shift like sand, while his truth forever stands. Scripture alone is our final and our ultimate authority. And every tradition and every human teacher must be evaluated in the light of the Scripture. In the book of Acts, the Bereans were praised for this very attitude. It says, now the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word of Paul with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Because every teacher and every tradition needs to be evaluated in light of the final and ultimate authority of the scripture. Because, friends, Scripture alone is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Scripture alone is breathed out by God, so Scripture alone must be our ultimate authority. But, friends, what does this mean for us today? What are the implications? You see, sadly, in our day, it's similar to Luther's day. In Luther's day, people weren't reading the Bible because it was only in Latin, and the common person couldn't read Latin. Even the clergy of the day were not well-trained in Latin. So there was a scandal of biblical illiteracy. Nobody knew what was in the Bible. And friends, today we have the same scandal. The fact is, we are not reading the Bible for the access that we now have to it, study after study, survey after survey have shown we're not reading the Bible. We are just as illiterate. And friends, when we don't know what the Word of God says, we're easily duped by every new wind of teaching and every fanciful teacher that comes our way. Friends, just like our day, In Luther's day, they trusted the thought leaders of the day to tell them what was in the Bible and what it meant. And we do the same thing. Oh, they told me it's in the Bible. He said it's true. But friends, the doctrine of sola scriptura calls us back to the scriptures. It calls us, don't believe every new wave of teaching. Don't believe every novel interpretation. Don't just believe every teacher. Don't believe everything Adam tells you. 
like the Bereans, go back to the Scripture and see for yourself. Because my teaching must be submitted to the ultimate and final authority of the Word of God. And if it's not, it's a false teaching. Church, in our day, we need to reclaim and understand this doctrine of sola scriptura. We need to actively, intentionally combat this scandal of biblical illiteracy that plagues our churches. Church, we need to take up our Bibles and read. And will you? But friends, a caution as we do. A caution as we read because sola scriptura doesn't mean solo scriptura. Scripture alone doesn't mean Scripture only or Scripture interpreted alone. You see, while Scripture remains our ultimate and final authority, there are lesser authorities that can help us. Confessions, creeds, theologians, church elders and teachers, they can help us rightly understand and correctly interpret Scripture. However, they only possess authority in that they are submitted to and correctly interpreting the Word of God, because the Word of God remains the ultimate authority. You see, friends, we need to be wary of this Jesus and me thinking that infects us, where I think I can take my Bible off alone, and I can just read it, and then I come up with these new and novel understandings and interpretations of the Scripture. But friends, Scripture alone does not mean Scripture while interpreted alone. The Bible is a communal document, It was written by community. It forms a community. It is to be read and understood within the context of community. So Scripture alone does not mean Scripture interpreted alone, while alone. But friends, while that's a danger, the real danger, the real danger that we are facing today, the real danger that the Scripture is facing today in this doctrine of Scripture alone is that we honestly don't consider the Bible to be the ultimate authority. We may say we do, but too often in our practice we don't. And we demand the Bible submit to other authorities. We're tempted to try to submit and conform the Bible to the authorities, the thought leaders, the shifting cultural norms of our day. We're tempted to try to bend Scripture's teaching to society's understanding, the understanding of the day about sexuality or identity or race relations or refugees. Friends, if Scripture alone is the ultimate authority, are you willing to bend and submit your understanding of all things to the Scripture and not try to go the other way around? Are you willing to stand in the eyes of the world on the wrong side of history because you submit to an authority greater than human history, greater than the intelligentsia, greater than the individual, greater than the ever-shifting sands of public opinion? Scripture alone is a question of authority. And church, what is your ultimate authority? Who determines what is true? When Martin Luther turned and submitted himself to the ultimate authority of Scripture, what he found there changed his life and it changed the course of history. You see, Martin Luther was said to be a man, when you read his biographies, of a very sensitive, maybe even overactive conscience. Today he might have been called a little obsessive or maybe even neurotic. 
You see, his conscience and his guilt drove him into a monastery where he hoped that a life of total devotion to God and radical service might finally bring him peace from his conscience that was always haunting him, telling him he wasn't good enough. But despite countless hours of confession, trying to unearth every impure thought and every motive of his heart, he still found no peace. And in fact, one day, Martin Luther was agonizing over Romans 117, which says, For in the gospel, Ah, no, Samuel, you're not supposed to go. Can you just click on, if you click next, something got clicked back there. Yes. There you go. Magic. Work magic. Hey. Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, to us, that looks like a scripture of hope. But to Luther, it looked like death. Because like others in his day, Luther had been trained in the medieval scholastic tradition. And that tradition would have that the righteousness of God was shorthand for the awesome holiness of God. The holiness that's so amazing that no sinner can stand before him. The holiness of God that's so incredible that it demands that the sinner be punished. So what Luther heard when he read this was, in the gospel, the awesome, consuming holiness of God before which no sinner can stand is revealed. And that doesn't sound like the gospel. That doesn't sound like good news to me. And it did not sound like it to Martin Luther either. Because what he heard was, God is so holy that he punishes sinners. And it only increased his fear. But one day, Friends, one day as he agonized over this passage, Luther came to understand the true gospel. Luther would later write, I grasped that the righteousness of God, I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Whereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors and into paradise. What did Luther understand? Friends, he understood that the righteousness that that verse was talking about, the righteousness that God offers, is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness not our own. He offers us in the gospel the righteousness of Christ. As we sang this morning, I dare not stand on my righteousness, on what I've done, because I fall short. My every hope rests on what Christ has done. None of us can work hard enough to be righteous to make ourselves right with God. So our every hope rests on righteousness, on what Christ has done. And now I can receive that through faith. It's the celebration that Paul wrote about in Galatians 2.16. The truth that we know a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works, no one will be justified. Friends, we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot do enough. We cannot do enough good. But by faith, we can trust in the righteousness of Christ. We can trust in what he has done. We can stand not on our own righteousness, but we can stand on what Christ has done by faith, and we can receive that righteousness as our own. 
but we receive it by faith alone. Not by our works, but by our faith. And friends, why is this so important? Why is this so important to us today? Because if righteousness, friends, if we can't be made right with God, if it doesn't come by faith, then that means you need to earn your righteousness. That means if you want to be made right with God, you have to do it yourself. And the problem from our experience is that we know we can't do it. As Pastor Eugene Peterson said, we can't save ourselves by pulling on our bootstraps, even when the bootstraps are made of the finest religious leather. No matter how hard you pull, friends, we can never make ourselves righteous. So by faith, we receive Christ's righteousness and we are declared right with God. Truly it is, as we sang this morning, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's commands. And should my passion never fade and my efforts all be weighed, all for sin still could not atone. So you, you God must save. And you alone. You God must save. And you, God alone can save us. And he saves us by faith alone. Not by what we have done. Not by our works. But by what Christ has done that we receive by faith and by faith alone. And the righteous will live by faith. And friends, where is your faith? Is it in what you have or can do? Or is it in what Christ has done for you? Salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone. You see, Luther had been taught that only those who were doing their best Only those who made the first move would then be eligible to receive the grace in the sacraments. And it almost made him crazy. Because of his sensitive conscience, he was always walking around wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough to merit the grace that God offers? Have I earned it? Because Luther believed it needed to be merited, it needed to be earned, it needed to be deserved. But friends, the gospel, the good news is that it can't be merited, earned, or deserved, but it is freely given. It is grace. It is a gift. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Samuel, click this thing. I don't know what's going on today. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, grace is sovereign, it's independent, it's not coerced, it's undeserved. We are powerless to manage, manipulate, or merit grace. God gives grace as a gift to whom he wishes. We can't earn it, we can only receive it through faith. And this truth rubs us all the wrong way. Because it offends us. It offends the idea that we're good people. It offends the idea that we're entitled to something. We live in an entitlement culture. I deserve something. This view insults our independence because it says you're powerless to earn it. So you're completely and utterly dependent upon God's goodness to you. The doctrine of sovereign grace, grace alone, grace humbles us because it says we don't deserve and we must come to him and freely receive by faith. It's as we sang this morning that we're saved by grace alone and it's undeserved yet so freely shown, because there's no accomplishment on earth that can achieve the second birth. 
Friends, do you understand how amazing is the gift of God's sovereign grace, undeserved yet so freely given? And if you have not yet received this gift of sovereign grace, what stops you? And church, if you've received his grace, what now hinders your gratitude and your worship? Salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, because Christ alone is the intermediary, the mediator between God and man, and his work is complete and all-sufficient. As 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Friends, there are no other saviors, there is no other way. We are not helped by saints, by Mary, by angels, or by any other being. And more than that, we cannot add to or improve upon what Christ has already done. The declaration of Christ alone protects us from the danger of Christ plus. The doctrine of Christ alone protects us from the danger of Christ plus. You see, in our pluralistic world, we might be tempted to declare, there's another way or another mediator between God and humanity. Jesus plus someone else. But Christ alone declares that he is unique, he is unyielding, he is distinguished from all others. He's the only mediator and he is our and the world's only hope. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. That's an offensive message in the ears of today's society. But it's a biblical message. And it's a necessary message. And it's a necessary corrective to the pluralistic and universalistic tendencies of our world and our hearts. And in Christ alone also makes sense of Jesus' declaration from the cross. For from the cross, Jesus paid on the cross for our sins, for our transgressions. And then he declared, it is finished. Friends, this saves us from Jesus plus. Because Jesus says, I finished it. I completed it. There's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing you can do to improve it. There's nothing you can do to perfect it. It's not your work. It's my work. It is finished. Christ alone and his work saves. Friends, church, do we believe it? So salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. You know, we need to remember, and this is a hard thing for us to remember, that Jesus' saving actions were ultimately not about us. There's a worship song that we have never sung here and we won't sing because of this. There's a worship song that was written about 17 years ago ago, titled, Above All. And it's a fine song with a very singable tune. However, the final lines of the chorus say this about Christ's death on the cross. You took the fall... And you thought of me above all. And friends, that's not true. Did Christ love and sacrifice for his people? Of course. However, Christ did not go to the cross thinking of me above all. Rather, what was Christ thinking of when he went to the cross? Paul tells us. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was highly exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Soli Deo Gloria. 
to the glory of God alone. Christ went to the cross not thinking about you and me above all. Above all else, he was thinking about the glory of God the Father. Because, friends, it's not about us. We think it's about us. We want to believe it's about us. But God remains at the center of all things, even salvation. It is not above all about me. It is above all about God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And we need to guard, we need this truth to guard our understanding and our expressions of salvation, because otherwise they become narcissistic and self-focused. And we put ourselves at the center, and we continue to make everything about us. But friends, the gospel, the good news, is supposed to reorient us so it's not about us. It reorients our narcissistic and self-seeking tendencies and it turns us towards God. The gospel reorients us so that it's soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. We should be focused on Him. He's at the center, not us. That's how our lives are to be reoriented by the gospel. So the Apostle Paul wrote, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Peter wrote, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another in order that in everything, what? God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, just as Christ saved us to bring glory to God alone, we have been saved, so now we can bring glory to God alone. All things, including the gospel, exist soli deo gloria, for the glory of God of God alone. And friends, this strikes at the heart of our most stubborn cultural challenge, our narcissism and our distraction. Because our narcissism, the gospel's reorienting me from my glory, from my comfort, from my convenience, to his glory. The gospel rightly understood reminds me that above all, it's not about me. Above all, it's about him. And this truth also addresses our pervasive distraction culture. Church, the greatest threat to the cause of Christ today is not immorality, it's Netflix. We stand in danger of frittering away our lives on drivel that doesn't matter. The church is being distracted into ineffectiveness. We're wasting our lives for our own glory, for our own comfort, for our own convenience, for our own pleasure. But the gospel says, no, live soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone, not about you. Because above all, it's not about you. When we allow ourselves to be distracted into ineffectiveness and coddled by our love of convenience and comfort, we become glory stealers. Because our lives should be lived to bring glory to God. And when they aren't, we're stealing glory that should be going to God. When we make it about us and not about him, we steal his glory. But the gospel calls us again. Live soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. And church, can we afford to do any less? Can the waiting world afford to have us do any less? In light of his free and matchless grace in the salvation we find in the gospel, does God deserve any less? So this Tuesday, 
we will commemorate 500 years of Reformation, recognizing the authority of Scripture alone, celebrating the, God, the salvation that we find in there, the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And church, we need to remember that we, God's people, must be always reformed by God's word. We must be always returning to the gospel so that we might be ever reformed and that we might live more and more soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. What God used Martin Luther and other faithful reformers to start 500 years ago, friends, may its effects and ongoing, and ongoing effects be felt in your life and be felt in Christ's church, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us in our weakness to live for Christ alone. Help us to live for your glory alone. Help us to live through faith alone. Help us to live by grace alone. Help us to live under the authority of Scripture alone. Father, help us to bring you the honor and the praise with our lives. What was started by these faithful men and women so long ago may continue today in me, may continue in us, And just as it has transformed this world, Father, may your gospel continue to transform our community, our homes, our workplaces, and this very world. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.